and welcome to The Coriolis Effect, Episode 6, You Haven't Got a Prayer. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew, and we've got quite a packed episode for you this time. We're looking at uh, some new releases from Freer Legan and Modifius. We've also got a discussion of the Witch Smeller Covenstead, which are the major antagonists uh, currently in Dave's campaign. And that leads us on to a discussion to talk about religion in general in the Third Horizon. We've got all sorts of interesting questions to ask about that. And I am going to present later on an atheist's talent. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that because I think we've had quite a few discussions about that talent and atheism in the the Third Horizon. And we are presenting just some ideas because we haven't come to a real conclusion. But I think Matthew's Matthew's suggestions are going to be really interesting. We can talk about that a bit later on. Um, The other thing I wanted to say was, Matthew, I think I preferred the other name for this episode that we thought of, uh, you know, the one man, two men, three men, amen. Amen. (laughs) But still, um, we haven't got a prayer. uh, And so I think that works really well as well. Yeah, yeah. And the important thing is atheists, they don't have a prayer. (laughs) No, exactly. And my, my, my players up against the witch smeller Covenstead, they haven't had a prayer either. Um, well, they've had a lot of prayers, but it hasn't really helped very much. Right. Well, no, they're still alive, aren't they? <laughs> they, are, they are still alive. And I'll, I'll give an update on the Spectral Corsair campaign a bit later on. But I think that brings me to uh, to some of the supplements that came out the last week or so. The, the four You're not su- allowed to read them, Dave. Uh, well, I'm not I've allowed told to... you this. <laughs> well, I've only had a chance to look at one of them, the Artifacts and Faction Tech supplement. And I had a quick look just to to, to look at the Zalosian um, aspects of it and it's it's really interesting because they've, they've now gone into a bit of detail about the animated armor that they mention in the core rule book without going into it in too much detail and it's it's damn powerful stuff which i'm not rolling into my campaign quite yet but it does fit an idea that i had before that came out of uh, what i called uh, a zelosian penance suit which is worn by uh, the zelosian acolytes and it's built for them individually. It's a bespoke set of armor, but it's a trial and it's a penance to wear it all at the same time. So, yeah, interesting. Um, but the the stuff that I've read in the artifacts and faction tech book so far seems really powerful. And I think I need to be a bit careful about looking at all those sweeties in there and throwing them into their campaign too early. But as you say, Matt... I yeah, ha- I well, your characters have got to have some sort of faction standing before they get hold of any of that sort of tech, haven't they? Well, it's not so much about them getting hold of it. It's about them having to face it, I think. But I'm not going <laughs> to throw that to them. But I haven't had a chance, because <laughs> I've been really busy on loads of other things uh, lately, to look in them in any greater detail. And you did ban me from looking at one completely because you want to run it. But what's... Um, yeah. Have you had a chance to have a look so, at them? So... The the artifacts and faction tech uh, supplement, as you say, is is stuff. Uh, the other three are all locations, <clears throat> and I must admit, I haven't actually read the third one, but I have looked at Aram's Ravine and Hammurabi, or is it Hammurabi? I'm not actually oh, sure. Hammurabi. Uh, Hammurabi. Yeah. Uh, anyway, whatever that place is, whatever the name <laughs> is. It's a portal station, so it's a portal station with its own politics and hooks for adventures. They, it's it's not an adventure by any means, but it definitely gives you inspiration for where an adventure might go and how your characters might come across this place and what they might experience there. Am I allowed to look um, at it? Am I allowed to read that one? You can look at that one. I think that's <laughs> okay. an interesting one because, of course, that gives us 
that I mean, this is a very particular portal station in a very particular location yeah. in the Third Horizon. But I think actually its lessons can be applied to all the portal stations. So it it adds a little bit of colour, I think, to every time your characters go through a portal. The one you're not allowed to look at is Aram's Ravine. And that one, as I was reading it, I'm not going to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil it for you guys. But all the time I was reading it, I will say there's something about it that makes me think of Outland. Do you remember the I movie do. with Sean Connery? Absolutely, yeah, 1980-something. I think that was one of our favourite movies. We saw that together at the cinema, didn't we? I can't remember, to be honest. Quite possibly. We did go and see a lot of that kind of stuff together when we were younger. I got a sneaking suspicion that that was one that we did see. Yeah. And I think we all, uh, uh, it was all our whole group. John was there and, and your brother Tony and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure. As a slight digression, it just reminded me of seeing Robocop with us all and John. <laughs> and we the, definitely all saw Robocop together. And the, yeah. the, the, the bit in it when uh, the character Emil, uh, who's a, you know, a bit of a, he's a guy that Robocop captures early on, gets one of those big guns and he fires it into a car and it explodes. And John, so that everyone in the cinema could hear it, went, I like it. And then the character <laughs> on the screen went, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I think I I started, I started not going to the cinema with John after that because it was a bit embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. sorry. Back to uh, Aram's Ravine. Aram's Ravine. So when I was reading it, it was reminding me. And it, for the for people that have seen Outland, you might then go, "Well, this is nothing like Outland," but there's something about it that made me think very much of Outland, and that made me think, "Ah, now this is a place where our bounty hunters could be going." And as I was reading it through, I was thinking, so what can I, you know, what sort of adventure can I make for our bounty hunters? And then it gives us an adventure, which I think fits your party, my the, part, the party of which you are a member and I'm a game master for, a, a really a perfect little almost self-contained scenario that's pretty much ready to go, actually. Yeah. It, it isn't a scenario as such, but it gives you enough there, the characters, the motivations, that I could pretty much run it tomorrow if I so choose to do. Great. So I don't want you to read that one yet because nope, that will spoil the ending of that thing. And then there's the Mahanji Oasis, which I haven't had a chance to look at. But it's really nice to get those four things. Obviously, as Kickstarter batters, we got an email saying that we could download them. But they pretty quickly appeared on drive through as yeah. well. And that in itself is important because... This means that now all of Coriolis, which hasn't until now been available for us Kickstarter batters on drive-thru, it's been, the PDS have been sold on drive-thru for some time, but now, you know, we've got drive-thru tokens for all of that, which means that we can effectively have bought Coriolis through drive-thru if we're Kickstarter backers, and we can write reviews of Coriolis on the drive-thru website. So I, I wrote quite a long review, which I put in the comments section but I'll copy that over into the review section and give it a rating now. Because let's face it, I think we quite like this game, don't we? I think we've kind of found that we're liking this game quite a bit. And I think as well, for me, the, the four supplements coming out all at the same time, they're all of a good length. So as a supplement, I think it should be there sort of, you know, 30, 40 pages or the one, oh, certainly the ones I've flicked through. So there's, there's enough content in there to make it really worthwhile having produced them, but there's not too much. Because uh, there is already a lot of content out there for Coriolis to, you know, to uh, lots of rabbit warrens for you as a GM and a player to go down and, and kind of get lost in. But they, what I've looked at so far, they look really good. I think you know, more of the same will be 
be very welcome. Yeah, we'll look forward to those. But you've got a you've got news of something else that Freel again have released or are about to release. Yeah, well, I uh, I kickstarted back of four mutant Mechatron, and uh, about a week ago, ten days ago, the alpha version of that was released to the Kickstarter backers. And I've had a quick look through that. And I just wanted to just talk a little bit about it and give my my initial impressions. I haven't played it yet, but I mean, obviously, if you've played Mutant Year Zero or Gen Lab Alpha, this game is going to feel very familiar to you. It uses the same dice, the same dice mechanics by and large, but it does change things. So in this game, you are just you are playing a robot. There are no organic creatures in this game. So this game covers robots, uh, only robots who have recently become aware so you live within a collective, which is under the sea. You did have humans there before. They all went off to fight a terrible war, telling you, giving you your last order to keep making us what we need to win the war. And then the humans never came back. In the meantime, you as a robot have somehow risen to awareness. So the so the robots, they're all intelligent robots, but they're not aware robots. So you've become aware. You've become genuinely individual. And it's it's a story... Uh, in terms of the the setting they provide you, the campaign they provide you, of how you manage that. And as a robot, the other robots in the collective might not be aware. And if they find out or think that you're aware, they'll take you away to repair you. But So I love the idea of it. It's a really nice take on you know what is one of my favourite games of, of recent years, Mutant Year Zero. So does it take place in the same world as Mutant Year Zero? This is a community under the sea while all our mutants are scrabbling around for crap, as they have been in the Mutant Year Zero core book. Yes. Is this this something that's happening at the same time? Yes, completely. What this gives you is, it's, a, it's an underground facility called The Collective that acts a bit like the Ark in Mutant Year Zero, but in a slightly different way. So The Collective is already there. You've already got stats for how good your collective is, how effective your collective is on a bunch of stuff. And whilst you are running your campaign inside the collective, which is what the initial campaign uh, is, is, it gives you the opportunity to do, you as a aware, intelligent robot are trying to preserve the collective, but the mechanics make the collective get slightly worse. So it's slowly going downhill. There is a, a way out of the collective. There's one way out. And I haven't seen the, the whole Ghost in the Machine campaign I don't know what the outcome of that is, but if you play through it when it's finished, when it's finally released properly, that will then take you to the point where you as a robot find the surface and you can then join the world of Mutant uh, Year Zero, Gen Lab Alpha, and you can then run campaigns with those characters in that universe. Obviously, mm. what it does give you as well is just rural systems that you could make up a robot and play it in Mutant Year Zero anyway, so it's entirely up to you. But it does offer you this robot-specific campaign inside the collective so in, in, the, in the alpha, there's just one scenario, which I won't go into in too much detail. But it's actually it's a really nice little scenario. It's well presented. It's, it's got a lot of potential to it. And it gives you a really good idea about how it works and how they expect you to run what they call work orders. I think it is that you would then complete a work order as part of a scenario. And that would give your collective some benefit. But it works. It looks like it's going to work really nicely. The other slightly different mm. thing about it is the way you generate your character. So it's very similar to other games where it gives you a mechanic for distributing attribute scores and choosing your parts and programs, which are your skills and modules, which are like your mutations in Mutant Year Zero. You have a chassis of three parts, a head, a torso and an undercarriage. And you then choose the part that you want to fit that. And each part will give you 
certain stats and you then build your robot in that way and it looks mm-hmm. it, it looks really interesting so my initial thought with it was well you know, a third game that's basically mutant year zero in another package how how different can they make it and obviously there are large parts of this that are identical or very very similar and as i said the feel is going to be very familiar for anyone who's used to those games but I, I kind of, I've got a little, you know, there's a little bit of me that goes, hmm, I quite like to play a robot. This looks quite cool and quite fun and quite interesting. And other things around, there's a kind of reputation dynamic called hierarchy. And the higher mm-hmm. in the hierarchy you are as a robot, the more the other robots have to obey your orders. So you might be a uh, aware robot being given an order by a higher hierarchy robot, if that makes sense, higher hierarchy. Let's say that three times quickly after a couple of pints. And if you don't obey the order, that might then make them suspect that you're malfunctioning, in which case they'll try and take you off by force if necessary and repair you. So yeah, I, I th- it's got a lot of a lot of potential. A, a really good addition, actually, to what I can see being future mutant campaigns that are run that will roll in both Mechatron and Year Zero into one game. Mm. It's interesting. I'm just thinking that there's a, a third Freel Again game that I saw for the first time. You've already bought Tales in the Loop, haven't you? I have, yes. Uh, it arrived in my friendly local gaming store yesterday, and I had a flick through. And it's just what you were saying about, you know, the, there's a scenario in the back of this alpha. Are there meant to be more? Do you think you'll see a, a chunky campaign in the finished book when that comes out? That's that's my impression. Uh, or at the very mm. least, they will, for the referees only, explain what they see the uh, the campaign arc being from the point of rolling up a character in the collective in the factory under under the sea to the the point where you realise your escape from the collective. A bit like the uh, the way they describe in Mutant Year Zero that meta story from being in the arc to yeah. then finding, uh, I can't remember what they call it now, it's been such a long time, but you find where the humans have gone, the, oh, God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bug me. Um, sanctuary? It, it's not sanctuary, but it's it's basically, yeah, the, the place where you've got to get to, which, uh, you know, when you get there, all your dreams are realised and everything's going to be fine. So they give you that... Obviously. They give you that story arc. Um, and there's quite a lot of detail about how that story arc plays out. Now, the campaign I ran, I didn't run that arc at all. I just... Arc, wrong word to use, perhaps. Seeing the mutants have an arc. I didn't run that campaign arc with a C through because I just wanted to run the campaign and see how they survived. But it's there to be taken up as a GM if you want to if you want to run it. And I think, similarly, I expect they'll give something similar in Mechatron for that campaign story arc for getting the robots out of the collective and up onto the surface. Because it's interesting, because the... The, the Tales from the Loop book obviously looks lovely. It does. Um, it's based on a game system that we all know and love. It, it chimes very well with Stranger Things. Have you seen Stranger Things yet, Dan? <laughs> no, I haven't seen Stranger You've Things not yet. not seen Stranger Things. Anyway, no, no, uh, I don't so have Netflix, I think, so... Uh... Uh, I, I've got a sneaking suspicion it's going to do really well in the Ennies. But, you know, when it came to actually putting money down for this, I couldn't bring myself to buy this book because a good half of it by weight, are for, again, lovely-looking scenarios. Mm. But it was almost, I was thinking, I don't want to buy this big hardback book, half of which I'm never going to look at once I've run those scenarios. The rules are in the first half, and there's a whole uh, year-long campaign, effectively, in the back half of the book. And um, I just couldn't bring myself to pay money for it. I mean, obviously, I'd pay money 
for the intellectual work that's gone into it, but I didn't want to pay for a book, half of which was scenarios. Yeah, I can I can understand that. Um, yeah, I don't want to turn this podcast into everything else other than Coriolis. But a, a, long, <laughs> a last point I'll make on that is having looked at... So I, I bought Tales of the Loop... Again, I you know I love buying games as a collector. I wasn't sure when I was going to play it. Uh, I'm not sure when I'm going to play Mechatron and other things when they arrive finally either. But I think for me, the thing that slightly puts me off it is the fact that you can't kill the kids. And <laughs> that, you bastard! That might you sound evil. Git. That might sound a bit harsh, but yeah, it does. My... Sounds very harsh. <laughs> Let me explain. Before you, okay. uh, before you condemn me as a, a, a evil monster um, who should be locked up, yeah. you've just uh, said it. There are hundreds of witnesses out there that have heard you say you want to kill kids on this podcast. <laughs> no, in general, I don't want to kill kids. <laughs> uh, hasten to okay. add, for the purposes of the tape, yes. So, the point I was making was that when when you take in effect what's damage. In, in Tales of the Loop, you get a complication or you get a problem that you then have to overcome. But you can't you can't kill the kids. The kids can't die. It's it's supposed to be like the Goonies or like E.T. or like you say um uh, you know uh, those kind of eighties movies that Stranger are actually, things. Yeah. that are actually that kind program of you haven't seen sort of happy endings at the end. And I yeah, there's just something about me. I like games with a harder edge that horrible things can happen. But but I think. With a little bit of GM tweaking and house ruling, you could turn, for me, you could turn Tales of the Loop from the game that it is that I, I recognise loads of people love and it's a great game. So I'm not I'm not dissing the game at all. Uh, you could turn it into a game with a real hard horror edge to it whereby the kids can die, but you've got to, as a playing a child or playing a teenager, you have to roleplay in a very different way. It, it becomes a bit more like a really hard-edged game of Call of Cthulhu where you know you can't defeat those monsters. You know you've got to run away or find a cleverer way of, of getting around that obstacle or defeating that enemy. And I think you could really have that dynamic in Tales of the Loop, where you know the kid isn't going to punch the 35-year-old bruiser and win the fight. He's got to find another way of getting around it. So I think there's something in there, but I think for me, my, my one slight disappointment is that you can't kill the kids. Right. Yeah, but, okay. Uh, Interested to hear what other people think. And as I said, I haven't actually played it yet. So... No. And I know it's got an awful lot of very, very positive uh, feedback. And uh, yeah, as a game, I think it's really good. It's just for me, it might might not hit the buttons for me in the way that I'd quite like it to. Yeah, I fear it's possibly eclipsed Coriolis, though, uh, which is a pity because I really love Coriolis and I'd love to have had its time in the sun. But maybe that'll come out. We'll get another boost on that when uh, when the... um, when the campaign comes out, we can push that out. Yeah, absolutely. We ought to talk back to talking about Coriolis, I guess. That's why we're all here. Yes, um, let's do that. And I think we've got a recorded segment from you, which is not about the Witch Mellor Covenstead, is it? It is about the Witch Mellor It is! Covenstead. It is! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Matthew, I keep getting this it? wrong. Uh, I, I keep calling it the Witch Mellor Covenant. Yes. And it's the Covenstead. It is. Uh, maybe I should shut up and we should listen to you, Dave. I think that's the best advice you've said in decades. The Order of the Pariah and the Witch Smeller Covenstead of Focas. Everyone across the Third Horizon has heard tales of them, although few have seen or felt their power. But those who have 
are changed forever by the retribution of the martyr. The aspect of the judge, who accepts unjust punishments, demands contrite confession and an absolute acceptance of one's failings. The Witchsmeller Covenstead is the order of the pariah's most revered, most feared, and most secretive sect, operating from the first planet in orbit of Zalos A, a bitter little rock called Phocas. Tidally locked, Phocas is a hard proving ground, and life there is both a trial and a penance at one and the same time. From there, the Witchsmellers roam across the Third Horizon, hunting down mystical aberrations and enemies of the martyr, without sparing a second to dwell on the obvious irony, that they nurture mystics with special powers to search for and hunt down mystics with special powers. The Covenstead is led by the Holy Hierophant, the Lady Maya Mariska, and her inner circle of honoured mystics, the Whisperers in the Abyss. Chosen as children, and raised to fulfil just one destiny, the Whisperers in the Abyss live deep within the catacombs of Mount Zanar. Under the searing light of the sun, they perform their seances, ceremonies held in the cathedral, built within the warm shell of the old volcano's magma fumarole. Their one destiny is to commune with the martyr, and expose the heresy that plagues the Third Horizon. Many are just children, and none ever live beyond their third decade, as their exposure to the icons demands a monstrous price. They age and wither at a terrible pace, with cracked skin, pale and cold to the touch, with deep-set, haunted eyes, and a frailty of movement. Within the Covenstead, they are the honoured, but without they are known as the accursed children of the catacomb. The Lady Maya is never seen in public, but is rumoured to be weak both of mind and body. Her attributes are two, except her empathy of four. Her power lies in her mysticism, with her skill of five, and the talents clairvoyant, mind-reader, mind-walker, and premonition, and in her ability to manipulate those around her with a skill of five. The Whisperers in the Abyss never have agility or strength attributes higher than three, and many are physically much weaker. They all have mystic as a skill, but are limited to the small range of prescient mystic talents, clairvoyant, exorcist, intuition, and prediction. Many, but not all, of the witch-smellers themselves are mystics, but with no such restrictions on their mystic talent. They are drawn from the character concepts fugitive, operative, preacher, or soldier, but in addition have a 50% chance to have the mystic skill and one mystic talent. The catacombs of Mount Zanar are sacred, inhabited by spirits and beasts from the darkness that only answer to the Holy Hierophant's authority. These creatures are thought to protect the Whisperers, but some say they imprison them instead. The Holy Hierophant and her hand-picked Covenstead guardians are the only ones permitted to enter the cathedral, other than the Whisperers themselves. Once every segment, a guardian will emerge to relay the martyr's pronouncements, and the witch-smellers are sent to track down the evil in the Third Horizon and offer it the martyr's justice. Mount Zanar and the Catacombs are surrounded and served by the holy shield city of Nile, the sprawling hub of life on Phocas. Not everyone living in the city's tunnels and under its domes is a witch-smeller or their minion, but they all devote themselves to the martyr, and they all work to advance or protect the Covenstead. Within Zalos, the witch-smellers openly ply their trade, but elsewhere they tread more carefully, keeping to the shadows. In nearby systems, they watch and wait, 
guarding the gateways to Zalos against all that offends the Martyr. Their presence isn't obvious, but it's well known they are on planets like Trini in the iOS system, and Jopaz and Chelebs in Mira. Further afield, their grasp is weaker, but the Witch Smellers are tenacious, relentlessly hunting down their prey. They will capture their charges alive if they can, to be returned to Focus for trial and punishment. But if that is not possible, they will exact the Martyr's judgments themselves. The Witch Smellers are led by the Witch Smeller Persuivant. Ruling from his glittering tower on the fringes of Nile, Darshan Rajneesh sends his men and women out to fulfil the will of the Martyr. When the task is troublesome, Rajneesh will send a favourite who has proven themselves faithful time and again. One such favourite is Narses Mordai, a gnarled and battle-worn witch-smeller who's never accepted promotion to the select order of the witch-smeller generals, for to do so would keep him from his work. Orders received, Mordai dispatches his minion, a semi-intelligent but loyal Skavara called Kadhar Galabea, for the filthy clothes she chooses to wear, to requisition an anonymous vessel from the Focas shiphouse whilst he prepares for the mission in the usual prayerful way. Kethar is one of a semi-intelligent rat-like species, and physically she is an average Skavara, but there's nothing average about her mind. With wits of five and empathy three, she is a genius among her own kind, and can do much aboard ship with a technology skill of four. Off-ship, she can slip around bustling cities and wilderness with similar ease, watching and learning, infiltration and observation skills both of four. Narcis Mordai himself is wiry and quick, with strength and agility of four, and is capable both with a gun, with ranged combat of four, and a blade, melee combat five. Heavily modified, Mordai has a cybernetic armour weave through his skin, the talent body armour, and cybernetic muscles. He hides these beneath his heavy silk kaftan and fur-lined kameez. He's also expert at the darker arts of intelligence with wits of four and empathy five, and high skills in infiltration and command, both five. These skills, and his mystical talent of mind-reader, have made him a most feared and effective witch-smeller indeed. How Mordai and Kadhar came to work together is not known, but rumour has it that Mordai rescued Kadhar as a pup, having delivered the martyr's justice on her mischief of Skavara. He was then commanded to raise the pup as if she were his own daughter, as an unjust penance for the destruction of her family. Travelling the length and breadth of the Third Horizon, the Witch-Smellers respect no law or jurisdiction other than their divine mandate. They are not recognised as a legitimate law enforcement authority outside Zalos, and they make no use of Ishma-Earth or any other infidel mechanism to justify their behaviour. The harsh approval of the martyr is all they need. Needless to say, Authorities in other jurisdictions do not approve of the unrestrained activities of the witch-smellers and their minions, but open trials are rare. Even convictions and the most punitive of punishments don't deter the witch-smellers from their divine calling, and even encourage them as an unjust punishment in their eyes singles them out as martyrs of the martyr. And besides, it's really worth antagonising the order of the pariah, even if their crimes are terrible. But the witch-smeller Covenstead is not all-powerful, as shown by the incident that has become known as the Great Redemption. Five cycles ago, a group of young whisperers braved the catacombs to flee Mount Zanar and escape the Zalos system. The Covenstead has never officially acknowledged this breach in their theology and this breach in their security, 
but they've been unable to hide the fact that a significant minority of the Whisperers in the Abyss escaped and fled across the Third Horizon, even if the Dark Morphs haunting the Catacombs took their toll. The impact on the Order of the Pariah was enormous, and even though there was silence on all official channels, the reaction under the radar was unmistakable. In the aftermath, many Witchmellers were purged, found unworthy, and executed in beastly ways. But the survivors were hastily dispatched from Focas in pursuit. Rumour has it that some of the children of the catacomb were easily tracked and sent to the martyr without any ceremony. But many remain at large, evading capture and avoiding the inevitable trial of the icons. The trial of the icons is the highest form of judgment performed by the witch smellers. The accused is placed, awake and aware, into the throne of Shahada, the sacred drone from which the accused will face the icons and receive their judgment. The throne of Shahada is launched through the portal to Zahedron, and the accused is judged as they pass through. If the accused is sane and clear of mind, the icons have judged them guilty of witchcraft, and they will be executed. If the accused is mad and delirious, they are innocent of witchcraft, and returned to the Covenstead Shrine Hostels in the Holy Shield City. Once there, they are lovingly cared for until they recover, or die of their experience. Needless to say, no one is known to have recovered sufficiently to be discharged from the hostels. So, uh, the Witch Smellers and uh, the Witch Smeller Covenstead gives me the impression that in your campaign, or at least for your party, the Zelossians are definitely the bad guys. It's interesting. I think I, I see my Zelossians in my campaign being a bit more benevolent. Yes. So I, yes and no. I, I think they, the Zelossians that they've come across have, on the whole, been the bad guys. So, I mean, the Witch Smeller Covenstead is that really sharp, fundamentalist, extremist end of the, the Order of the Pariah. These are the people that they rely upon to enforce the, uh, you know, the, the will of the will of the, the order. And they go out into the much wider third horizon to, to hunt down and track down these people and kill them if necessary or drag them back for trial uh, if, they, if they're able to. So these guys are pretty vicious. And my players in the Spectral Corsair campaign, their first introduction to Zelosians was by being boarded by a witch smeller and his, his minions because they had Alina on their ship and she was spotted in the system prior to Zalos uh, on the planet of Trini. She was spotted by the Zelosians there as a known heretic and witch and therefore their ship was tracked and they were immediately boarded. So they've had a pretty rough experience. But there is a real not black and white thing for me about Zalos. In some of the discussions we've had on uh, G Plus and, and elsewhere, I've tried to, to to make the point with some of it that for me, you get the you get those wing nuts, you get those guys who are the complete freaks. You're never going to convince them otherwise. They're always going to you know be willing to die for their cause. But across Zalos as a whole, you've got a whole range of different people who all hold pretty much the same beliefs, but to you know, as in the real world with religious, to different levels of application and dedication. And that's the case for me in my Zalos. So my players uh, have ended up on Havila, which is an outpost in Zalos of Zalosians. But people that they, um, I could, you know, I'll, I'll give the update later on in the in the podcast for what happened on the a scenario yesterday. But, you know, these are people that they could deal with uh, and ended up dealing with. So there's a there's a there's a there's a wide range across across the board. Cool. I think for me, I, I, 
that's one of the things I really like about how all of the horizon has been written in Coriolis. There are no absolutes. And, you know, in lots of other games, particularly games I felt of the 90s, where the whole idea of factions as partly as a mechanic to replace class in character generation, but also as a storytelling tool, you know, to create sort of intra-party conflict, was always so definite. This faction will behave like this and only like this. Yeah, exactly. And yet what you see throughout Coriolis is this faction generally do this thing, but actually here's an example of something within this faction doing almost exactly the opposite or doing it in the opposite sort of way. Yeah, exactly. So it has been, I think I think one of the my favourite things about the setting is that sort of uh, fractal nature of the, the, the nuancing of, of everything that appears black and white to begin with, but isn't. So I'm interested in your take on the heretics of Zalos B. Okay, well. If your party was asked to smuggle arms to Zalos B, what should their attitude be? Are these guys good guys, victims of the Zalosians, or are they heretics who should be burned to death? It's really interesting that you said that, and we haven't discussed this before, but one of we introduced a new character. My son, Dean, joined our group for the game yesterday. And uh, I'll go into how we introduced his character uh, a bit later. But he is... A Zalosian from Zalos B. And... Burn him! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you could argue... No, no. I mean, there's a real thing here, which is, again, about black and white. So, for me, the the Zalosians on Zalos B are simply those who have a slightly different belief. So, it's about a schism in the Zalosian, or the, the Order of the Priors theology. And that has led to this war... Uh, so actually, you know, the complete zealots from within the Witchsmeller Covenstead are no more extreme or no less extreme than the most extreme of the Zalos B faction who are fighting them. But clearly, the the Order of the Pariah you know, exert dictatorial control over the over the systems, and where that doesn't happen, they then use force to to enforce it, which has led to the war on Zalos B. So I think for me, they aren't like the the next step up. I think also, for me, the Order of the Pariah aren't quite as nice as I think you have taken them to be by some of the background in the book about their work on Coriolis with their yeah, um, good so, Samaritan so stuff. I, I'm inspired by the Samaritans. Yeah, this is uh, the one big, should we call it, non-profit or charity in the Third Horizon. These are guys who work tirelessly, particularly for people that have um, come through portal space and been warped by that. Uh, people who are the dregs of society. And, you know, this isn't a very kind society anywhere in the horizon to people who can no longer work for a living. And yet there are the Samaritans doing that good work. And they are Zelosian. They are the public side of the Order of the Pariah. They are, but in so my campaign, I... but in my campaign, uh, for me, that's a front. So in the piece, as you heard just a minute ago, there is a, a wide a wide and covert support network for the Witchsmeller Covenstead around the Third Horizon. For me, this includes the Samaritan outposts on Kua and at Coriolis. And yes, they are on the face of it doing some good work, but actually this is a front for the the wider Witchsmeller Covenstead to be able to manoeuvre and operate. And it also gives mm. the Zelosians a bit of you know, political leverage, perhaps through uh, you know, goodwill. If people think, you know, they're not so bad because they're doing all this 
a good Samaritan work. And obviously, in my world, they want to have some... The Order of the Pariah want to have some economic advantage when they can see it. So in my campaign, the portals are open to Zalos. As everyone will know, if you've been listening to these podcasts, my, my players mm. are in Zalos and were sort of welcomed in initially as, as traders. But deep down, the Order of the Pariah is, for me, scared and pretty insecure. You know, they're worried that people hate them for you know, the extent of their belief. They're worried that people envy them for their technology, which clearly is really, really epic stuff, some of it. The, the civil war on Zalos B is draining their strength, and they are concerned that the Legion are just a hair's breadth away from invading Zalos. And, you know, they feel the need to trade. They, they do need stuff from the rest of the Third Horizon. They, they recognise that they can't just shut their doors and, and be okay, particularly with the Civil War going on. Mm. Now, you see, I think my view of the Civil War is different from yours as well. well mm. Maybe not so different. But for me, I'm hoping that what I've seen of players, uh, not in our groups, actually, but as you say, on, on G Plus and the other forums... There's a perception, I think, of a lot of players that the Zalosian, the, the Zalos B guys are the victims in the Civil War and need to be supported. And I'd like maybe my players to go with that impression, but then to find that actually the people on Zalos B are the real religious nutters, that the Zalosians as a whole realise they can't let these guys go out and screw up the rest of the universe. And let us remember as well that the Zalosians defeated Nazarene sacrifice. Now, your player in my campaign is not yet quite an adherent of the philosophy of the Nazarene sacrifice, but uh, he's heavily influenced by it, isn't he? Yes, Jaffa is torn at the moment. So he's learned about Nazarene sacrifice from an old slave friend that he, he knew on on Zalos when he was there as a, as a slave. And this fellow has given him a a very small holy book, which, uh, you know, Yafet likes and it, it draws him in. But the beastly side of his icon, the beastly side of the dancer, which actually asks for some pretty horrible things, goes against his nature. He's not a sadistic, he's not a sadistic character like my uh, my character in Serenity that we played, Stonewall Jackson. Mm. Uh, who was a clone of Jubal Early, but had uh, gone slightly crazy through the cloning process. You know, it's fun playing a sadist for a while, but after a while it gets a bit it gets a bit grim. And, yes. uh, and his untimely death at his own hands, trying to set an explosive trap that he then failed the roll and it blew up in his face, was, yeah, as I said, probably timely. It was just. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was very just. So, so Yafet isn't like that, and he's trying to fight against it whilst at the same time feeling drawn towards the teachings of the beast. Mm. So there's that little thing there. And obviously we've we've got a player uh, in Andy who's playing a Zelosian, Salem. And maybe uh, I, I've made uh, Andy's character a member of the Order of the Tassahill, which is the Indulgence. And I think the Indulgence are my softer... Uh, cuddlier side of your witch smeller, uh, Covenstead. Right, okay. The indulgence is a euthanism, in a way. The mercy of the icons is execution. So he is an executioner. And he was charged, his problem is that he was charged with killing your character, executing your character for a sin that at the time 
we hadn't really defined. It could well be simply that you'd built a ship with uh, a chapel with all nine icon alcoves, when, as we know, the Zelosians are only meant to worship the martyr, which is an aspect of the judge. That's an interesting question, though, isn't it? So should you only revere the martyr of which... The martyr, the, the icon of which, you know, you're born under... You know, how does it play out? I mean, I haven't really got a grasp for that. I don't spend too much time worrying about it as a GM. But I think there's a real question there. I don't know. What do you think, Matthew? Well, that's, yeah, I think that is an interesting question. So obviously you you get a talent and, and you, you, you have chosen to revere an aspect of the talent that you have, which is the dancer's talent, which we're taking at least from the calendar being your star sign, effectively. Yes. So you were born under the dancer's talent. You have chosen, through getting involved with the Nazarene sacrifice, to actually say, well, maybe maybe this, this is the icon that I should be spending most of my time with. But in your roles, under the rules, you have complete freedom to pray to whichever icon is the warden of whichever skill it is you're re-rolling. And you, as a player, haven't chosen to say... No, I'm not going to pray because that's praying to somebody other than the dancer. Yes. Now, the question for somebody like Andy, who is a Zelosian, should, very clear throughout the throughout the fluff bit, not the rules, but the, the fluff bit of the book, it says again and again and again that the Zelosians recognise only the judge. Yes. And uh, the, to pray to anybody else is a heresy. It's got a little bit of a caveat somewhere where it says you can kind of say that the other icons are all aspects of the judge. But still, I think there's a really interesting question for a player like Andy taking on the role. And in fact, I challenged him with this one since he was going to be a Zelosian. I said, are you only ever going to pray to the judge? Because then that limits the sort of roles that you can pray on. In the end, he chose not to. He chose not to, yeah. And maybe that's the reason why he, part of the reason why he effectively needed to leave. Yes, and I think that's that's how he justified it in his head. You know, he's not being a good Zelosian. He didn't kill you for your so-called heresy. Yeah. Uh, and he's not, He he his problem is that he recognises in himself he's not a very good Zelosian. And he, he is starting to pray to other other ones. He might well say, I pray to the dancer and the judge or the judge and the dancer or whatever when when the role's appropriate. But that's not the only faction where there's that could be that sort of limitation. The Draconites pray only to the executioner, and the executioner is an aspect of the Lady of Tears. So should a player playing a Draconite character have you got any Draconite characters in your in your party? No, we haven't, and they the uh, they have come across a few draconites, but not in any really significant significant sense yet. But we've got a couple of first come, but no, no draconites. Yeah. So you see, should a should a draconite player say, "Well, I will only pray to the Lady of Tears," which again would limit the choices, the the the, the skills which she can prey on. And there's the then there's the thing that actually two of the. Fr- the friendliest factions, in terms of factions that get on well together, are the Order of the Martyr, the the Order of the Pariah, and the Draconites. These are the guys that banded together to defeat your lot, the uh, the Nazarene sacrifice. Well, I think there's very much a, an element of politics going on as well. So, 
certainly in my universe, there are people who would, both Zolosians and Draconites, only worship and revere you know, the one icon. And I think for a player who is playing either a Draconite or a Zolosian, it's up to them to decide whether their character is that, that committed to their religion. Whereas I think a lot of the others would just pray to all of them if they felt felt the need, but maybe favour uh, that particular that particular icon. So I, but I think there's a political element in all of this. So, you know, the Draconites might hate the theology or disagree with it of the Zelosians, but when push comes to shove, and you've got to fight somebody, you know, the old adage that your enemy's enemy is your friend, they they gang together with people that they would otherwise choose not to. But for political reasons, they did it in order to come through that situation alive. Yeah, I think if you read, you know, all the stuff about the Draconites, one thing shines through, and that is that they're pragmatic. Yes. So they left the Zenith. Remember, they're they're officially a first-come faction, but they actually arrived on the Zenith. So they're the Zenithians. But while everybody was faffing about on Zenith about what they should do, having arrived in the system, these guys just left the ship and said... We're going out on our own. Yeah. And so I think they're pragmatic. And I think I'd, as a GM, I'd be more forgiving of a player that said, well, I'm a Draconite, but I'm praying to all the other icons than I would be. I think I'd always challenge a Zelosian, particularly one like Andy. Not so much one like you, because you weren't brought up as a Zelosian. You, you moved to Zalos in your early childhood. Yes. So I, I never challenged you like this, but anybody brought up on Zalos... I think I would say, are you sure you want to pray to all the icons? <laughs> and it's up to the player, like Andy. I know. think it's a good thing. I think that's a good thing to put on a player in that position. The The corollary of that, though, is it does significantly limit the options for pushing their roles for praying, because there'll be a lot of actions that they wouldn't then be able to do that with. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, well, you see, I, I think I'm not... I wouldn't necessarily limit their action for prayer. Right. I think... Though that I would be saying that once they start praying to the other icons, their faith or their faction standing might take a hit, depending on how public it is, and you know stuff like that. There's a there's a moral code there that I think they can be as as a player. Obviously, they can be as flexible as they want with that, you know. And I think Andy's taken it fully on board. That's part of his character's problem. So you know that's that's might be one of the ways in which I activate his character's problem in future episodes but i might do the same for a draconite but i as i say i might be more forgiving on a draconite yeah in that i get that his society is more pragmatic less fundamentalist so yeah. he might get away with more prayer to others I, than than a Zelosian would yeah again it's interesting because in my game the new character that is played by dean as i said is a Zelosian from zalos b he's taken as his archetype fugitive because he's fleeing the war he's he says he's lost faith in the icons. And so he's decided, as just part of his backstory and for role-playing, that he is never going to pray to the icons again unless something really... Unless it's absolutely life and death. <laughs> and we'll see how that plays out, but it's a really nice little bit of backstory and role-playing. It's almost given himself a, a problem. Uh, yeah. in addition to his other problem but it's not one that I will spend darkness points necessarily on activating but it's a good one for him to role play we'll see how well he role plays it because he's he's new to role playing but he seems keen so we'll see how that, cool. that goes on there was one other thing I was going to mention having been uh, getting Dean's character together I looked at the the icons and the, mm. the, the cycles 
And it struck me that you've got nine cycles in three triads. Cycles being months, obviously, you know, so it's in three month, um, three month triads. But between each yeah. triad, there is a special festival day that is used to celebrate the, the next three months coming and the icons of the next three months. It struck me, what happens if, uh, as a person, you're born on one of those special days and you're not actually born under any of the icons? So for Dean's character, he's chosen to have been born on one of those days. I've given him the uh, a talent that I've kind of slightly worked up called Icon Sight, which I think I mentioned before, which in in effect allows him to go through portal space whilst awake. It doesn't give him any 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 negative effect for doing so. But I just wondered, I mean, maybe there's something in there about expanding on the idea about somebody who's born on that day. Uh, yeah. I've, I've given him the name, I've given people born on that day the name of Void Child, just sort of came out of the blue, so I'm not saying that's a, a good one that should stay stay there. Shouldn't be canon, necessarily. But yeah, I like it. So that those guys, oh, well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, are mystics born more often on those days than any other day? It could go in all sorts of different ways. You, you've opened up a seam for a whole, a whole wealth of other talents, other so-called icon talents, or possibly non-icon talents there for for people maybe to to capture well i'll say i've i've created one icon talent i was thinking of creating a you know maybe a few more that would then apply to people who had no talent and it was just Mm. kind of a void talent rather than an icon talent and whether you then might want to do them specifically around those three particular festival days which which i think what they're called the cyclade the foundling founding and the pilgrimage or something like that i think yeah so yeah, something for me to think about in future. But we are—I'm kind of—I'm kind of running with it in my campaign with with Dean's Dean's character at the moment. We'll see how it plays out. Mm, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. And of course, that actually brings us neatly into another talent that I'd like to discuss. Earlier on, you said that Dean had actually chosen not to pray or to try, uh, unless it's a life and death situation, not to pray to the icons. There is another group of people who maybe shouldn't be praying to the icons. And that's the foundation, because they swear that the icons don't exist. Yes. And so, although this hasn't come up yet in either your campaign or mine, I thought, what happens when when an atheist character gets generated? Should they have an icon talent at all? And I've created an alternative that I'd really like to try at some point. Yeah. Well, let's listen to that, and uh, uh, we, can, we can talk about what... It- you know, some of the issues it raises. Not everyone in the Third Horizon believes in the icons. The core book calls that part of the consortium many concerned with research and development the secular foundation. That said, not everyone in the foundation is an atheist. On page 243, it refers to the most ardent disbelievers in the foundation, which suggests that most of the foundation are shall we say, less ardent. I'm sure, in fact, the majority pray to the icons, if only under their breath. After all, it's the rational thing to do, even if you don't have scientific evidence that the icons exist. Uttering a short prayer, when you want things to go right, isn't going to do any harm, is it? We know that Rabin Bokor, the Foundation's Akbar on Hammurabi Portal Station, is a friend and frequent dining partner of the preacher, Talib Ogor. 
Not everything in the dark between the stars can be explained with science. But what about your players? What if a player wants their character to be a hardline foundation scientist, an atheist? How do they play that in the game? This hasn't come up for me yet, and currently the factions aren't a big thing in my campaign. Where they do appear, they are like the wheel of fate, crushing the characters beneath its rim. That's one of the things I like about the rules and the setting. Unlike many games with factions, no one is forced to become a member of one. Indeed, only three character concepts give players the opportunity to start with the faction standing talent. But what if your players do want to get more involved in the politics and traditions of the factions, and represent the scientific method of the foundation? Or to play a hardcore Zenithian with a sceptical view of the first-come religion, or wants to play an atheist just to be different. How does that work out in play? And more importantly, how does that square with the icon talent that every character receives? Shouldn't there also be an atheist's talent? My first thought was that perhaps an atheist should get a bonus on his or her more rational skills. But what do you call rational? Do I mean all the advanced skills? Well, sure, I can get behind a bonus on command, culture, data gin, of course, and medicurgy, but mystic powers? I don't think so. Indeed, I'm making a house ruling here and now. You can't be an atheist and have mystic powers. So that made me think. You get a bonus. Not on advanced skills, but on all skills that are based on the wits ability. I quickly ruled that out, though. Yes, it extends bonuses to skills like observation and survival, but it would exclude culture. And more insidiously, it equates rationality with intelligence. As my mate Tony pointed out, with all the evidence there is of the existence of the icons and the dark between the stars that characters discover, atheism is an irrational philosophy. So no, I'm not giving a bonus to roles exclusively involving wits. In fact, I'm not sure a mere dice bonus is a good idea anyway. My thought had been to give just plus one dice to each roll, given that the bonus would apply to so many rolls. But given the way the dice mechanic works, there's a perception out there that makes players feel their characters are incompetent, despite rolling a good number of dice. A plus one die bonus may not cut it, especially because I'm sure of one thing, that the cost of an atheist talent is that you are not allowed to pray. Ever. Well, that's not quite true. I want the cost to be that if you ever do pray, you lose the atheist's talent. The whole point of this rule is to create a situation where the player must weigh up the cost of admitting that the icons exist against the opportunity to succeed when they've failed a role. I want the temptation to pray to be counterbalanced by a talent that has real value so that losing it and opting to re-roll is a big decision. And while I think that a plus one die bonus on every roll is actually a big deal, I worry that players won't appreciate its value and will discard the talent on the first fluffed roll. Then it hit me. Certainty. The atheists in this universe are stubborn believers in an idea, despite all the evidence to the contrary. They know, or think they know, how the world works. They are confident that they can explain cause and effect 
action and reaction. So, how about this? The atheist talent. This talent may be chosen instead of randomly selecting an icon talent. For each advanced or general skill in which they have one level, except mystic powers, if they have mystic powers they shouldn't be an atheist, the player makes a roll, with a plus one bonus before the game starts, and notes the result. A failed roll means that the first time they use that skill in the adventure, the character will fail, but after that they can roll normally. Any roll with one or more successes can be held until the player chooses to spend it. They don't have to spend it the first time they use the skill, they can always choose to roll normally instead and accept that roll. Any difficulty penalty the GM imposes is taken from failed dice before dice that rolled 6. If the player chooses to pray, re-roll, on any roll, the character loses the atheist talent and must spend 5 experience points to draw an icon talent. Thanks, Matt. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I had a look through the book and I can't find the word atheist or atheism anywhere. So no, it's obviously right. not something that's that, that's been really brought forward before. So I think we're saying that atheists can't pray. And when they do pray, if they do pray, that's not only the end of their atheist talent, but also... It should be a really powerful narrative moment in the game for them because it's a complete change mm. of, of of their life. Is that what you're... Well, I think so. So uh, what I wanted to try and do was reward somebody that wanted to try to be an atheist. So it talks about the most ardent secularists or something of the, uh, of the uh, foundation. I thought if somebody wanted to play one of those, the mechanics don't help them do that. Because obviously praying, particularly if you, you know, in a life and death situation, uh, is, is the easy way to, the game, you know, is all about prayer. And so it should be. I, I love the fact that the game is so centred on uh, the religious experience. But for those people that want to be an atheist, what could be a way of making them really think about what they lose if they pray? So I wanted to give them a talent that hopefully would turn out to be quite powerful. I think it needs to be powerful because, in effect, what you're doing is taking a taking a talent and the ability to re-roll your dice and replacing it with this talent. So it's, yeah. it, it needs to be pretty alluring, I think, on the face of it, to, to, you know, to tempt players to do it. I think playing an atheist might be quite fun... But you don't want to disadvantage that player by. Um, you by don't make, want to nerf the player by no, being an atheist. Do you? No, exactly. Yeah. So as I said, you know, this is a experimental, and so far I haven't even play tested it, so I'm not putting it out there necessarily as a, a thing that everybody should do. Although actually, in a way, yeah, maybe if there's anybody out there interested in doing it, do do it. But then tell us what the play experience is like. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of things about the uh, the non mechanical elements of this and then i've got a couple of comments that i'll just just raise in on on the mechanical bit but i think clearly this makes other icon reliant talents unavailable to the atheist character and there aren't many of them i think there's only three one of them being the mercy of the icons group talent which i think is a pilgrim thing that allows you to negate darkness points and then in the general talents you've got blessing 
and Talisman Maker, which are obviously two things that are very icon focused. That an atheist wouldn't do. No, yeah. absolutely. Although I'm not sure that if you had one atheist in your group, whether that whether I'd disallow the mercy of the icons as a group talent. I mean, obviously, potentially that that player would choose never to invoke that talent, which of course then means that he's two icon talents down effectively on 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 the thing. But I think the rest of the group could could invoke it. Yeah, I think problem. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's also a question of actually, can you be a mystic? So in your piece, you say that you know they they shouldn't be. They can't have mystic powers. And I think there are probably quite a few mystic powers there that wouldn't fit very well, or would you know, or would exclude being an atheist. But mind reader or um, some other talents like that, might an atheist think there's a physiological scientific reason for that to happen, rather than yeah, interestingly, it being purely, that's, purely I, I religious? chose very carefully the word I use there as house ruling as opposed to house rule. Yes. So in my campaign, no, you can't. Yeah. But I think it could well be open uh, that for other GMs to interpret that differently and say, as you've just said, that um, uh, you know th- there could be a, a department of ESP or whatever extrasensory perception in the foundation that are researching these things and and think about an entirely scientific background for them. I think the reason I'm saying that in in my camp at my table that wouldn't happen is because I want there to be a really religious background for all that not religious but a a mystical religion a, a mystical background for these powers. Yeah, and I get that, and I think that's good in the sense that it means that mystic powers maintain that Arabian Nights spiritual mystic mystical feel about them, rather than making them uh, just some other kind of scientific thing, unless of course. You are one of those groups that doesn't really like the mystical side of the game and is playing Coriolis without that, and you yeah. still wanted to include some mystical talents. But you know, yeah, that, that's yeah. Up, that, so I, that's I think if you're wanting to play this like a game of Traveller, for example, then obviously, a, you know, if you want to have some of those mystical talents in there, you'd be explaining them away with science. Pretty much everybody would be an atheist. Um, potentially, because, you know, I know Mark Miller didn't really believe that religion would survive the future. So, so yeah, I, th- I think at your table, if you want to do it that way, there's no problem with doing it that way. Yeah. So the other thing I thought, on the mechanical side of it a little bit, so it feels to me, again, I made the point earlier about <clears throat> this talent has got to be pretty, you know, pretty uh, tempting to, I think, draw people in who might be, uh, you know, tinkering with the idea of playing an atheist, and it feels to me that oh, the way we've got it at the moment, it's it doesn't feel necessarily that powerful. So you you talk about making a roll at the start of the game against the you know your skills, and then if you fail that you know, that roll, you then will fail a an action using that skill, or you will see that an action is just beyond you, whereas before you might have been able to roll for it. Yeah, I think. I think that's an important clarification to make. So the way I think that happens in play isn't that, uh, you know, you've got an athletic skill, you make a roll on it, you fail that roll in advance of the game. The first opportunity you have to use that is for crossing a terrible ravine with spikes at the bottom, which you will die. It isn't that you have to cross that terrible ravine 
and we know you're going to fail so you die or get hurt it's simply that you go no there's no way i can cross that ravine we've got to find a way around it yeah and that makes that make that makes some sense my my concern here is that knowing how the dice work sometimes those set of rolls for the atheist player at the start of the game might actually give him more failures than successes and therefore it becomes a real burden being an atheist rather than actually giving you some some positive benefit and i think the balance might be a bit off so i, I had a suggestion i had a thought that mm-hmm. rather than rolling for each skill and a fail being being a fail maybe a fail is just that you get no bonus and i think there might be two ways of potentially doing it i'll just throw out there one would be you'd roll on each skill and for every success you got on that skill that would build into a, a pool of successes you could then play out as the game played on a bit like i guess glory points and the like putting aside my previous comments about <laughs> glory points um or, altern- <laughs> or alternatively it could be that you do what you've suggested but you just take away the fail mechanic so a fail is just you don't get a bonus for that particular game because it just feels to me, knowing how the dice roll, that you might end up with atheists on a big proportion of all their skills going through the beginning of the cam- of the scenario going, nope, can't do that, nope, can't do that, nope, can't do that. And I just wonder whether the balance is right. Well, I must admit, I thought that... I possibly thought about you here, actually, Dave. I thought that a player taking that atheist talent would you know with every failure go right well the first thing i'm going to do is go for a jog because i failed my athletics role so it's going to be a crap job but i'm getting <laughs> rid of that so that when i really need to use athletics i've got a, a, a you know a fresh role to make i think there is uh, a temptation in that i think that you might get players going i'm just going to jump that jump that fence just for the hell of it oh yes. no i've oh, failed I've fallen I've, over yeah yeah uh, so, so, and you know, I think I wouldn't mind them doing that. Actually, uh, yeah, I haven't got a problem with that. But actually, as you say, it might be that that's too harsh, and you just say that you only note down the ones with your successes, and you don't worry about the ones where you didn't succeed. Yeah, I think that could be fair. But really, we have to play it out to see how it feels in play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. As with a lot of these, a lot of these talents, we haven't played them very much or at all in the game. So, and this is one, obviously, and some of the others. I think the only one we have really played out is the hardened epidermis, which yeah. both Andy and in your campaign and Tony in my campaign have got that got that talent as humanites. Mm. But no, great. That um, seems to be working quite well. It it does. So, um, I'll come to the spectral corsair. Well, update. maybe it's time for another chapter i'll come of, to the spectral, uh, spectral corsair, corsair update right now then let's let's do that so you may all remember that they'd just gone through the portal trying to rescue alina from her trial of the icons and they'd managed they managed to do that and they just about managed to get themselves into stasis in time not entirely but uh, but pretty much so they came out the other side of the scenario the second scenario the next scenario continued immediately after so they had no gap between the two scenarios so they, they, they got themselves out of stasis, having got back, come through the portal. They're now on the Zalos B side of the portal. And as they were going around checking the ship, they found something rather unusual, which was on their communal dining table, there was what looked like a five-hand game of poker being played, but nobody there, a bit like the Mary Celeste, but it looked like it had been being played. There was mm. dirty crockery in the kitchen, which hadn't been there when they, when they left. And there were other signs of haunted, life. Haunted, haunted ship. 
So they were a bit concerned about, okay, there's somebody on board this ship. This is, you know, this is this is all a bit, all a bit weird. So they decide to, they, they they search the ship and they find a stowaway. And the stowaway is a human, uh, a refugee fleeing from the civil war and Zalos on Zalos B, who had ended up at Havila as one of the sacrificial victims, who had then stowed away on board the Spectral Corsair from on on Havila and had, had hidden for a week as they went to try and find Alina, and then. They found him, and he was hiding in their in their smuggling stash. But it then suddenly dawned on them that he hadn't been in stasis. So how did he survive going through the portal space? And this is introducing Osgar, that's the new player, that's Dean's character, mm. who is a fugitive with mystic powers, born on the Void Day, so he's a void child, with the icon sight talent that allowed him to go through portal space unaffected. And he'd been playing poker with some spirits for the day, the 24 hours that it was taking them to fly through through the portal space. And then had tried to hide again once they came out of, uh, out of the portal, clearly having left the mess behind for them all to see. So they were a bit concerned about him, but Alina vouched for him. She said she could sense something about him. She's a mystic as well. And so they, they, they trust Alina's word on a lot of this stuff. So they, they were prepared to be, to be sympathetic towards him. Also, Morgan recognised him, Morgan playing Ajit, who had done the data gin to stop them being sacrificed. He'd recognised him from the data feed, from the camera feed, as one of those who were being sacrificed. So they knew that his story, at least in that part, was true. So that introduced Dean into the game quite uh, quite nicely. So they decide they've got to get back to, uh, get, get the hell out of Zalos. And rather than go back through the portal, they decide to fly from uh, Zalos B to Zalos A, because it's 35 AU in their ship that would take about two and a half weeks. So they decide to do that. As they're doing that, they get a message from Havila, from a group now called the Redeemed, which are basically those people who they'd saved from sacrifice and who were now uh, kind of the elite on Havila, and they'd effectively taken control because all the Havilans, in their pious belief of, of the power of the icons, they were now revering them and were listening to them, and they'd basically taken control. They received a message saying, Havila is a haven for you, you will always be welcome here. So they decide to head for Havila in order to repair before getting getting the hell out of out of Zalos. On the way there, Alina, who had been very aloof and superior all this time before they saved her life, is now beginning to open up a little bit. And she reveals that she, she comes originally from Odicon, which is where they're heading to try and find Resim that Resim had found her in stasis in Odicon a number of years ago and had saved her life. And they'd been lovers for a while. And she now feels an obligation to go back and try and find him. Um, having had that discussion, Leo Valdez, the captain, decided to hit on her. And to his and everybody else's surprise, she agreed. And she and he had a bit of fun in his cabin. So, uh, well, <clears throat> lucky, lucky. Remember... Fa- this is going out before the watershed. It's a family-friendly <laughs> programme. Yes, not yes. Going into too much detail. So there was a lot of hugging going on, shall we say? They were hugging mm. each other's brains out. They loved each other very much. They did. They loved each other a long time. Anyway, as they were flying between the two stars, Shikoba the cat gave birth, and as they feared, something bad happened. There was some kind of spiritual eruption of energy. the The cage that she was in broke apart and these two giant dark spiritual beasts burst from it the ship itself was kind of twisted by the power of of what was happening they had another hull breach 
unfortunately, in the cabins where a lot of them were sleeping at that point. And three of them managed to get themselves out. Unfortunately, Hanbal, the pilot, was but was hurt again. Punctured lung, I guess appropriately, oh, seeing, the, seeing the atmosphere was pumping out of his cabin. But they managed to save him. However, on the cargo deck, where Ajit and Osgar were when this all happened, they, they ended up fighting these dark-bound creatures. And in the end, they defeated them with 8-Bit's help. Uh, who had originally closed off the cargo bay to keep those creatures in and keep the cats in. But during the fight, one of the cats was killed. One of the kittens was killed. And there were nine kittens. Each kitten had markings or something that denoted one of the icons. Unfortunately, mm. they killed the kitten that was belonging to the deckhand, which is the icon for That's both. That's not good news. That's not good news at all. your spaceship, where everything seems to go wrong anyway... Yeah, um, they've had a lot of bad luck again. Again, the die rolls played out where the ship was hit, which cabin was hit, which module was hit. And again, the die rolls ended up with Tony having a life-threatening injury. But they rely upon the deckhand talent that two of them have to keep the ship alive. And now it's quite possible that they've angered the deckhand. They don't really know for sure. But Valdez and Hanbal took the kitten to their chapel and put it before the deckhand's shrine and prayed over it in, or in the hope of getting the deckhand's forgiveness. They didn't get any sign of that, except a couple of days later, the kitten's body disappeared, and they don't know what happened to it. So they survived that. They did have quite a lot of argument over what to do with the rest of the kittens. 8-Bit, with his new fear of small furry animals, wants to put them straight out the airlock. Obviously. Some of them want to sell them, Try and make some money out of because they are these are clearly weird, mystical, at least influenced creatures. One of them, the the one for the messenger, has got fiery eyes like the messenger icon has. Some of them want to offer them to religious authorities for some kind of, uh, I guess, some kind of benefit. And a few of them want to keep them. So there's quite a lot of a divided opinion at the moment, and they haven't decided what to do with them yet. But they managed to limp onto Havila. Got there in the end. This is the only place in the whole of Zalos that, that will welcome them. And Hanbal is saved. Uh, he got the minus one from his hardened epidermis, the minus one Medicagi penalty mm-hmm. for having that. that. Yeah, that I made. Yeah, which I think was a really good idea. But he was quite happy because he was in really good medical hands and there was quite a lot of dice being rolled. So he came through that okay. And that's pretty much where they ended up with the ship repaired, serviced, it's resupplied. They've all recovered from their injuries and they are waiting to to move on. The last thing that happened before they left was they received a message from Jubal, who they sent a message to a couple of scenarios ago when they thought that Alina was, was going to be dead. And he sends them a message back saying that if you need help, get to Ina K City on the moon Carthai at Trigon in the mirror system and find Samar at her Hammam and she will help you. So they've got a new destination to go to, a safe place to head to in Mira, but they want to, on the way, on the way down to the portals in Zalos, stop off at the coral station that they think was destroyed when they went to get the freighter and see if they can salvage anything useful from that on the way. And that is where we've left it. Mm. This is getting quite exciting, isn't it? And it does strike me that you guys, or your your party, should get off that blooming ship. Because... <laughs> all their all their injuries seem to happen in space. Every single critical injury that's nearly killed one of them has come through explosive decompression. 
and I did get a I had a little sense yesterday running this scenario that at least I felt oh god not again um yeah. when the dice roll came to that to that point they will hopefully be getting off the ship quite soon I want to change the pace of the campaign they've been in Zalos been on the ship for probably four scenarios now and now it's time to get them out and get them into mirror and do something a little bit different so hopefully they'll manage that in the next scenario and they can go and visit Samar at her hammam. I wonder whether there's a thing, though. Oh, that, that could be good. I'm looking forward to uh, <laughs> that, that, that happening. But I just, I, I'm just beginning to wonder whether, you know, it's a, it's a slightly simplified critical hit table for space combat. It is, yes. And I wonder whether it's just not nuanced enough and, you know, whether you're rolling explosive decompression too often for... Uh, the perceived enjoyment of all the characters. Yeah, I'm not blaming you. I'm no, the table, no. Not having enough options. Um, I, th- I think you're right. I think the table is too narrow. Uh, we, we do need to roll a few dice to get to those to those conclusions. So they've been very unlucky in that they had a critical hit and the, the roll on the critical hit table was the bridge when they were all in their bridge. They had a critical hit this time and it was on a module on the table and you roll randomly for the module. And that came up with Cabin, where three of them plus Alina were. So they've been terribly unlucky on those dice rolls, actually. But yes, I think you are right. I think there could be something to do about expanding that crit table. And as you say, make it more nuanced. That is what other people think. Which brings us to feedback. And I just wanted to say we had some nice feedback for our last episode, which was uh, the first part of our actual play, which um, I have to say, we, you know, we... we we think it's quite good, uh, Dave and I, and I'm sure Tony would agree. Uh, I'm not sure. Has he heard it yet, Dave? I don't think so. He hasn't mentioned it if he has. He does tend to listen to them, though. So he might well have done. I'll ask him when I see him next. Yeah. Uh, anyway, somebody was um, praising my GMing style, so I think I probably <laughs> am better than you. Have we had any other feedback, though? Yeah, there's been some really interesting discussion on the uh, G+. Plus forums particularly around the cybernetic leg talent that we talked about a little while ago and a an update i gave to that on my blog site rpggods.org where i changed it slightly to up the cost but actually the debate has been very much around the actual mechanics of of the talent as i'd put it forward and we've had a lot of good ideas and good discussion with Auden lovely i hope that's the right way of pronouncing it and we've had a really good debate about about some of this particularly around my use of an attribute penalty rather than a skill penalty and it's a good point i think it possibly is the only place in coriolis where an attribute penalty has been enforced but i've Mm. done that in order to try and try and reflect the fact that having a cybernetic leg that has been smashed shattered it might be smoking it might be burning it might be quivering you know who knows will actually have an impact upon quite a lot of stuff and Auden suggests that it wouldn't affect pilot maybe and it wouldn't affect ranged combat perhaps yeah i I can see that it it might as well depending on how you want to rationalize the the actual effect on the cybernetic leg and the effect it has on the person generally and the same for piloting it might be that with a broken leg a broken cybernetic leg, you're unable to pilot. Maybe the ships have foot controls like aircraft do. Uh, who knows? It's up to any any GM to, to, to decide. But he suggested p- 
putting it onto onto skills. And yeah, I don't disagree with that. The uh, the solution I think that is coming out of this for me anyway, and he, Auden lovely may feel differently, but is that perhaps what it should be is rather than a blanket reduction of one attribute, it should probably apply to both strength and agility, but situationally at the GM's discretion. So for example, if you've got a smashed up cybernetic leg and you're trying to force a door open, you know, using force skill with strength, that's going to be a problem because your leg's smashed up. But if you're using force as a act of strength with just your arms, and you're trying to break something that's hand-sized, you're trying to snap it in half, then it shouldn't affect then. then no. you know. And likewise, for ranged combat, if you are propped up in a seat and you're well supported, and you, yeah, there's nothing, no reason why you shouldn't be able to shoot your gun just as well with a broken cybernetic leg as you would with a with a working cybernetic leg. So I think that's a really good amendment to to the talent. And I really welcomed the the debate. You know, he hasn't agreed with some of the stuff I've put out and I haven't agreed with everything he's put out. But I think together we've come up with things that have probably made it better for both of us if if we want to apply it in a, any circumstance. So yeah, really good bit of feedback there. Thanks very much for that um, and appreciate appreciate more. We're all about being a forum for debate as, as, as well as... Um obviously saying that our decisions are the very best decisions that anybody could ever make aren't we <laughs> well we might to uh, one, maybe to, not we maybe might not. to one anyway, another we're, we're but... keen to hear any more feedback on anything we've been discussing today yeah. particularly you know go out there guys and try the atheist talent and tell us whether it's going to work or not uh, i'd be interested to hear about that completely and the same applies to the cybernetic leg talent and any other talents that we put out there because as you said very few of these have been play tested there are best efforts to fill a gap in the games that we that we see and that we're running but clearly they may well plan out very different in the actual game that you guys are running yeah cool uh our next episode after this one will be part two of our actual play uh so that will come out shortly after this one we'll try and alternate them so that people that don't like actual plays don't have to listen to a whole run of them anything else we want to say dave just we'll try and put them out in a uh, in a schedule that means we are not delaying our discussion podcast as well. So we don't want yeah. the actual play episodes to get in the way of the main reason we've started up these podcasts is for Matt and I to have uh, pointless conversations that you can uh, listen to and poke fun at. Yeah. Cool. Smashing. So uh, I think that probably winds us up for 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 today. Do send us your feedback. You know all the things by now. You'll see us on the G pluses quite a lot. That seems to be the favourite place for people to hang out. Uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And before the icons kill Dave with his lung infection, may they bless your travels. Goodbye. been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric.